0: quite an introduction to a portion of the message that we're going to be dealing with today or the message entirety. Good morning to you and I pray that uh, this morning's message might be one that would truly have us consider deeply these things with respect to the Word of God, the Bible and the book, the book that I hold in my hand, this one here. That we hold to as the very word of God for the English speaking people and we've been dealing with this series, we've been dealing through this series that though what we have within the world today in English are some 400 English versions of what God said, instinctively we know that that can't be right. It can't be right. We must know this. I mean, any individual, any normal, sober-minded person would be able to testify to the reality of that, that if you've got more than one version of what God said, then you're making God a liar. You're confusing the reality of God. And we're testifying as we go through this, the reality that that we believe that in the english language the king james version of the bible is the very perfect word of god for the english-speaking people that it doesn't stutter it doesn't confuse it doesn't contradict itself that everything within this book is a unified whole but what we see throughout history and through the previous five messages that i've also outlaid is that there has been a devilish work within the world to confuse the word of god and to give us different versions ...of what it is here but it's not the only one. We've got different religions that have been brought up through history... ...like the Mormons and the like. They've got their own little book, you know. This is all there to do one thing and one thing alone... ...and that is to create a system through which men would find themselves... ...eternally damned forever without any hope. A confliction of ways that you can get to heaven. Yet we know instinctively there cannot be a multitude of ways... In order to access heaven, it can only be one. And so this portion here, this sixth um, this sixth portion of this study is the prohibition of truth. We've already looked at five before that. The source of truth, the persona of truth, the preservation of truth, the proclamation of truth and the protest of truth. Those five have already gone before in this particular study and today we are dealing with the prohibition of truth. How? men through history have prohibited the truth of God to be preached and to be taught and even to be found, even to be found. This next After this we'll have the permutation of truth and that is how Satan will work and has worked through history to replace the word of God with something else. And the last one will be the permanence of truth, the reality that the truth will always be true regardless of what we think is true for you, right? The truth is true. So our focus this morning is on this text in Matthew chapter 23. It's only on two verses, verses 34 and 35. I gave you the context to be able to understand and see where Jesus is speaking. And it says there, Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. That upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, the son of Berchias, whom he slew between the temple and the altar. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in every way, dear Lord, I need you this morning and only you, Lord, can know how much I need you, how much the people that are here, dear Father, who desire only to hear those things that are true and write according to what the Bible teaches, I pray dear Father, we all, Lord, need you. We need a a knowledge of the word of the living God. We need your spirit to be working in and through us that we may have eyes indeed to see, ears indeed to hear, and hearts desiring in every way to understand. Please, please, Father, be with us this morning as our need for you, dear Lord, is also desperate. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. My desire this morning is to be able to demonstrate through the scriptures and through a little bit of history that what we have in this book is true and that there has been an active work throughout history to confuse the reality of God. You see, mankind finds himself in a desperate place and that's something that we all recognize. We we know that we are sinners. We know that we have sinned and all that sinned have come short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches that there is none good, no, not one, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that in that we are in a desperate state because now we find ourselves in the same condemnation as the devil hell and hell was created specifically for the devil and his angels not for man that's its origin but man's own sin puts him in the same condemnation as the devil and what a problem this is we look at the 10 commandments and the 10 commandments are an incredible reflection upon us they reveal to us that we fall short And we picture them as a chain of ten links hanging over a pit of hell. The breaking of one of those and one of those alone is enough to condemn us. The Ten Commandments aren't there to save us. We know this. We talked about this even last week. We can't be saved by keeping those commandments. Why? Because we've already broken them. We've already broken them. And we stand now on a precipice. We have this entire life to go through in order through which we can be saved. But if we are not saved, at the end of our life, we are condemned. And this, is, this is a desperate, desperate state. And the devil wants nothing more than to have everybody cast in, to take away that glory of God and have it for himself. And in such, we can expect with all clarity that the devil will do his work to confuse the truth to take away from you the hope of eternal life. And he's even done this through religious leaders. Jesus is here speaking to the Pharisees, the Jewish Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, even uses religious leaders to actually confuse the people about the wonderful hope and the simplicity that we find in the Bible. And I can't think of any other simplicity other than that. God sent his own son to die on a cross for us. And because we see through Scripture that this is not only the Son of God, but God the Son, we also recognize that His blood is sufficient for all people and the parameter that He gives is that we believe. That's it. We believe. Holds nobody else accountable. Only those who will believe. They have access to everlasting life because of what Jesus has done, not what we've done. I don't know if you've tried to be good enough. I've tried and I don't know the more I look at myself the more I realize I'm definitely more bad than good I cannot be good enough and so we trust the Bible and what it teaches with regards to the hope it's believing in him so four items that I'll look at this morning is the prophecy of prohibition that we see within this text the performance of prohibition the historical reality to this text The purpose of prohibition, what it is that is desired by these Pharisees and the price of prohibition, what will come upon those who distract from the truth of God. The first one, the prophecy of prohibition, Jesus speaks about something that that he says would come. He says, wherefore behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes and some of them ye shall kill and crucify. And some of them ye shall shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city mentioned before that over a third of the Bible is prophecy over a third of the Bible is prophecy we we see it right from the beginning it's not just the prophetic elements of scriptures we've got those 17 books that are a, a compact of prophecy. But we also see even from the time of Moses, Moses spoke about things yet future. He spoke about those things that if Israel does not hold to the truth of God, then it will be taken into captivity, that this will be done, that that will be done. And all these different things would occur to the nation of Israel if they reject the reality of God and what he says within his word. We see also Samuel later on, who's known as a seer. A seer, the Bible teaches, was also known previous times as a prophet. God qualifies that within the text in Samuel, 1 Samuel 9, 9. We see also King David who is known as a prophet and the list goes on and on and on. There's a number of individuals in the Bible that are spoken of as prophets. We've got 17 books of the Bible that are dedicated out of the 66 that we have that we also recognize are prophetic books. Five major prophets and 12 minor prophets. And those are all there, compact, nice and neat, on the other side of the wisdom books. You recognise the Bible has got a beautiful structure to it, especially you see that so clearly in the Old Testament. You've got 17 historical books. The first five are the books of Moses. The next 12 are the books of of other portions of history. Right in the middle, you've got the wisdom books. And those we can see from Job, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, those there. Then you've got 12 or 17, rather, prophetic books after. There are again five and 12. Those 12 are broken up into three and nine. Same with the historical books. Anyway, I don't want to show you how my brain looks like. You know, I just want to give you that bit of a scope that you would understand that there's a beautiful structure to the Old Testament and the New. The New's got a, New Testament's got a structure to it as well. And this is something only the Lord would have been able to do. Jesus speaks here of the prophets as far back as Abel. And he speaks about him as a prophet and speaking about how the Pharisees are represented in Cain, that you slew the prophets from Abel all the way to Zacharias. interesting, from A to Z. A to Z. And I find that also interesting because we have a structure to our Bible that is a little bit distinct from the structure of <laughs> the Bible in the Hebrew book. The Hebrew Bible is a little bit different. It has, it ends our Our Old Testament ends with Malachi, one of the last prophets. Well, the Hebrew Bible doesn't. It ends with Chronicles. It ends with Chronicles. And in that ending with Chronicles, that's where Zechariah first makes his his appearance. And that's where the account of him is found. Jesus spoke about this and he spoke about it prophetically, that these are the things that you are going to do. You are going to kill the prophets. You're going to stone them that have come unto you. And you're going to do that because of your own wickedness. We'll talk about that in a moment on the reason why they do what they do. But Jesus also testifies in John 13. He says, now I tell you before it come that when it come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Why is one third of the Bible prophecy? To testify that the book is true. All those prophetic elements within the book are written prior to the events actually manifesting themselves. First to the people of God, which is the nation of Israel that God had given the word of God to originally. First to them, that they may know that if these things come to pass, no, look back and realize that I told you that this would happen. But also for us, we see this also for us. And today is an incredible time of history to be alive. Jesus was asked within the scriptures what are going to be the signs of your coming and of the end of the world and Jesus didn't shy away from the question did he no he answered the question he answered the question and you can look that up in Matthew 24 Luke 21 and Mark 13 gives you the answer to the question when they ask the question the first one relates to deception beware that no man deceive you and we're living in a time of The most amazing deception I've ever seen in my life. Absolutely incredible. I'm almost convinced that if they told you today and they made popular on the media that the sky is purple and not blue, there are many people that would believe it. There are even ancient, ridiculous ideas that are manifesting themselves in these days. Why? Because we've had the word of God taken out from under our feet. We no longer have the discernment to know what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false. Jesus said that these things would come to pass. And specifically here, he speaks about that with related to the very words of God. The prophets that are sent are speaking the words of God to the people and the wise men that are sent also, but they will kill them, crucify some of them, scourge some of them within their synagogues. Scourging is not a pleasant activity. Scourging is, a, is an act that actually rips the flesh from the body, literally rips the flesh apart from the body. Sometimes it's metal fragments on a cat and nine tails, sometimes it's bone, whatever it is, it's a hard portion that is designed specifically to rip the flesh from the body. It's, it's not, obviously not a pleasant thing at all and yet this is what's going to happen to them. But the Bible also speaks about the last days and how the reality is that the truth of God, most importantly, both through these prophets, but also speaking about the time that we're living in today, is going to come where the truth of God will be removed from us. Turn your Bibles to Second Timothy. Second Timothy chapter three. It's after first Timothy So it's after First Timothy, which is after the books of Thessalonians and before Titus. It's one of, the, one of the last books of the New Testament. It was written prior to the death of Paul, just prior to the death of Paul. It was just before he would give his life for the sake of the Word of God, before he was decapitated under the hand of Nero. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and he speaks about the days to come as perilous. Have a look from verse 1. Our focus will be verse 8, but verse 1 Gives us the context. He writes and says to Timothy, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, Heavy, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Jannes and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men as theirs also was. This is speaking about a day that is to come of a picture of, well, not the world, not the world, the church. This is a picture of what the church is going to look like in these perilous times. This was always in the world, The behavior of men from loving their own selves to being unthankful and unholy has always been in the world. This isn't a picture of the world. Paul is talking to Timothy, who was a pastor, and he's relating that to the state of the church in the last days. And we are living in this particular time where it's so evident, where even the men behind pulpits are lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, even they are disobedient to parents and go on and on and on. This is the manifestation. And what's the point of this? Because they resist the truth. They resist the truth. They won't be held accountable to anything. Won't be held accountable to the word of God. That's not their final authority. They are. They are the final authority. This is the nature of the church in those days. It's interesting. He speaks about these men as being reprobate concerning the faith. Synonyms to the word reprobate are depraved perverted, sinful, debased, degenerate. These are the synonyms that we have to reprobate. Now, clearly, this isn't a description of everyone who doesn't believe the King James Bible. I'm not saying that, right? There are definitely godly men out there who are just simply confused about the matter. They've never looked into it with any degree of depth. They've never looked into the one source that we can have with regards to the Word of God. So it doesn't describe everybody. But we see this even in the New Testament. I mean, we spoke about it a little bit this morning earlier, you know, Peter, his shadow would pass over people and they would be healed in the Bible. It speaks about Barnabas as a good man. He was a good man. Yet both of these were caught up in a dissimulation that Paul had to address in the book of Galatians. He had to tell them off because they were in error. So too it is with a lot of these other ministers. They're godly men, they love the Lord, they know the Lord, but they're in error when it comes to something as serious as where our very source of the Christian faith is. They're in error. Some of them, however, resist the truth. They resist the truth. And why do they resist the truth? Because they're lovers of their own selves. Guys, I don't know about you, but because we are born again, we are changed. There's a change that's happened within us. And that change that's happened within us, the Spirit of God has actually come to dwell in us, which is the weirdest thing if you try to explain that to people. And yet it is definitely something that had happened. We're changed. Where we used to run away from the law and excuse our own sin, now we find ourselves running to the law, desiring only to obey the Lord and to follow His will. And now our sin convicts us. We feel grieved because of our sin. I never felt that way before I was saved. Now I feel that way. Before I never felt that way. What's changed? Well, now I've got the Spirit of God and and He's the Spirit of truth and He condemns me for my own sin. And this is a very practical reality. This is why we can know that we're saved. So I don't understand how men can be such lovers of their own selves when they recognize their own nature and their own sin. I I don't get it. I can't love myself, I've got to admit. The only reason I might is because the lord loved me first you know lord loved me first i love charles spurgeon charles spurgeon speaks about the the how god in his sovereignty already uh chose him before the foundation of the world as the bible says and he says i'm so happy he chose me then because if he knew me now he might change his mind (laughs) and it's so true you know so true But these are righteous in their own eyes. And that's the problem. Rather than search the scriptures to see if those things are true, like the noble Bereans did, these men want to justify the reality within their own minds. And yet Jesus speaks clearly that there will be a time where these men will manifest themselves and remove the word of God from your hands. Take away the truth from you that you would basically trust the man behind the pulpit. And this is what we find in the world today. Every expert that stands up behind a lectern, everybody is to believe what they say. That doesn't matter whether it's a politician or it's somebody doing a TED talk. It's exactly the same. People have almost literally gotten so used to going home and watching the television where they take their brains out and they sit it on the top of the box and they say, tell me everything I need to know. And they almost do exactly the same thing when they come to church. Tell me what I need to believe. Tell me what's true. Beloved, it's not our job to tell you what's true. It's our job to point you to the source of truth. Point you to the source of truth. If my job was to do anything, it would be to encourage you to get into the book and to read the Bible. It speaks plainly. It speaks plainly. But men from ancient times have also been prophesied that they were there to to take you away from the truth. And so we should not see anything different now that we've got, I, I, I've lost count of how many different versions of the Bible there are out there. But are we honestly thinking that that's not deliberate? That we're just trying to make it a little bit simpler? Are we honestly saying to ourselves that oh, it's because of the change of the English language? Has the English language really changed that much in 100 years? Really? We Went from old English to middle English and there was about 500 years that went by to go from old to middle English. Can anybody read or understand Old English? Anybody read or understand Middle English? It's almost like a completely different language. It's still Middle English. Yet this book was given 400 years ago and yet we can still understand it. Shakespeare could barely understand Chaucer and there was only 200 years between them. Only 200 years between them. We're 400 years on and we can still read Shakespeare without any problems at all. So it's definitely not a change in the English language. These men were before ordained to do these things, to take away and to resist the truth and to have us resist the truth. The performance of prohibition in Matthew 23, verse 35, it says this, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of Zacharias, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Bechias, whom he slew between the temple and the altar. This is the important portion to understand. The death of Zacharias is recorded in 2 Chronicles 24, verses 20 to 21. This is a part of history of the prohibition of truth, that these prophets were killed. Why? Because they told you a lie? No, no. It's funny that. Isaiah actually tells us that the people want to be lied to. Lie to us. Tell us falsehoods. Tell us what we want to hear Paul refers to that in Timothy saying that the church is going to be filled with individuals who have itching ears that are only going to crowd around themselves people that they would prefer prefer to, to have leading them and teaching them because they want to feel comfortable where they're at, they want to feel comfortable, they don't want to be told anything other than what they are wanting to believe and it's a tremendous tragedy and we're seeing this all over the place today find themselves uncomfortable with the truth. Stephen was the first in the Bible that we see. His death was recorded in Acts chapter 7. Turn there with me just for a moment. I just want to share with you a few verses here of what Stephen had said. He told the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel at this particular time all their history from Moses all the way to actually from Abraham all the way down and he's testifying to them in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, he culminates a summary here with regards to their nature. Acts chapter 7, verse 51, this is the Acts of the Apostles. After the Gospels, you've got the book of Acts. You go to Romans, you're too far. And this is what Stephen says to them. He says, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Ye. Which of the prophets have your fathers have not your fathers persecuted and they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers whom have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it and when they heard these things they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth but he being full of the holy ghost looked up steadfastly into heaven And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Consider the truth that he died. It was a consideration of the truth. It wasn't because it was something that was wrong that he said. He wasn't trying to scratch their ears. They were not convicted because he was lying to them. They were convicted because he was telling them the truth. Well, how many of you have ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced that? I don't know. Well, I've heard people actually say to me, Pastor, I think that you're preaching directly to me. Are you, is that what you're doing? And my answer is always the same. Yes. No. But yes. But I don't have you in my mind as I'm preaching, is the answer. It's the Spirit of God that's actually convicting the heart. These, there's two responses to this. Either there's a repentance in the heart, a sorrow in the heart, or there is anger, and what we see here is anger, an anger that led to murder, essentially. But these are not the only ones who died for the truth of the, testifying the truth of the gospel. We see this right through history. The prohibition of truth was testified. James, the brother of John, was thrust through with a sword, the Bible said. History testifies to Philip the evangelist, who was first scourged severely and then crucified some eight years later after James the brother of John had died. Matthew of the gospel of Matthew was killed by a halberg. And that is an ax like a spear with a steel spike on the end of it. He was killed by that in the city of Nadabar in Parthia. Mark was dragged through the streets of Alexandria, Egypt by his feet. He was then left in a dungeon with his body burned the following day. He was killed through that dragging through the street. James the Less, this is the brother of Jesus, who became the first bishop of Jerusalem at 94 years of age, was thrown down, beaten, stoned and clubbed to the head till death took him. I won't go into the description that they actually gave in the source that I gave you, lest I offend you. Matthias, the apostle who actually took the place of Judah, was stoned and then beheaded. Andrew, the the brother of Peter was lashed to a transfixed cross for two days and while he was in that state he preached the gospel until he finally expired. A cross today is known as Saint Andrew's cross, Saint Andrew's cross. Peter the apostle in the city of Rome during the reign of Nero preached and converted two captains of the guard and also 47 other men during the nine months that he was imprisoned. Finally he was taken just as the Lord said he would be. His arms were stretched out. He insisted that he would not be crucified at his Lord, but he would be hung upside down on that cross. And after first being f- severely scourged, his flesh torn from his body, he expired on that upside down cross. Paul the Apostle suffered a lot of trials for the truth's sake. We see that within the scriptures. Most of those we've actually got in there. He was beaten, he was stoned, he was left for dead in the city of Lystra. He was imprisoned in Philippi. He was persecuted in Thessalonica. Finally, he was taken by Nero and then beheaded simply for preaching that Christ died for our sins. And all who believe have eternal life. All right. Does it it strike you as a little severe? I just want you to think about this just for a second. We spoke earlier that there's over 200,000 Christians being killed simply because they believe that Jesus died for their sins. Why would that inspire someone to kill you? Just think about that for a second. I mean, we're not talking about individuals who have gone into a house and raped the entire family and, and deserve this sort of punishment. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins and I'm going to go to heaven. I mean, maybe that should inspire pity. Some people that think I'm a little bit of a nutcase, you know? i could accept that that would fair enough yep that's that's it's fair enough you know why would it make anybody angry why would it make anybody angry and yet that is exactly what we see we christians are being killed not because they're preaching hate but because they're preaching the love of god who gave his son as a sacrifice for our sins And this is the thing that we have within Scripture, and yet they're being killed for it. To me, I think that there's something unusual about that. It was the same thing when I actually discovered about the King James Bible. I was wondering, why is it that everyone hates this book? You know, why is it that it's so loved and why is it also so hated? And I didn't have a King James Bible at the time and I went to a college that I was getting a a book uh, called The Elements of New Testament Greek. I was studying Greek at the time. And I went there and I thought, well, I'm there, I'll grab a King James Bible, you know. So I went in there and, and I was looking for a King James Bible. You had everything else except for the King James Bible. There was the Message, there was the NIV, the ESV, the NRSV, the Good News Bible, all, all, all of these different versions, but not a King James. So I go to the second-hand bookshop and ask the lady there and I go, have you got a King James Bible? And she goes, no, I've got a new King James. That's the same. They've just taken out the these and thous, yeah? No, they've taken out a lot more than just the these and thous." So... And then when I spoke to the, the lady behind the counter to pay for the book that I had, uh, I mentioned about the King James Bible and this guy comes out from the office and he runs to the shelf and on the bottom of the shelf he pulls out these other books and pulls out this tiny little hardback King James Bible with the red rim. Not, you know the, Not the gold leaf going around it, but red, it's red going around it. And I was like, that's the King James Bible. I had a look at it and with a microscope I could read the print and I'm like, that's it? The book that changed lives and nations for 400 years, the book that prospered the entire Western civilization, the book that brought so many people life, you've got to dust it up. Why do they hate the King James Bible? Why is this the most hated book in the world? Could it be for the truth's sake? I just thought that that was curious. You don't have to take my word for it. Do your own research with regards to that. Finally, he was killed. Jude was crucified in seventy-eight A.D. Bartholomew was beaten, crucified, and taken down prior to expiring, and then beheaded. Thomas, the timid disciple of Christ, began to be a avid preacher with passion of the truth of Christ. He was thrust through with a spear in India. Luke, the beloved physician, preached to the barbarians until the priest of, of Greece had him hung on an olive tree and he expired there. Simon the Zealot, preached in both Africa and Britain and was crucified at the end of his ministry. Barnabas, whose death manner was uncertain, yet died about the year 73 AD. And finally, John the Apostle, the Apostle John, the one the book of Revelation was given to us. He was sent bound to Rome by Emperor Domitian He was cast into a cauldron of boiling oil but was miraculously unharmed until he was finally banished to the island of Patmos where he wrote the Apocalypse and died near a hundred years of age. Think about this for a second. Just think about this for a second. Really have your minds open here. These are the 12 apostles. Each one of them died for preaching the Lord Jesus Christ died and rose again they died now it's easy enough to see people who would die for a lie who would believe a lie and die for that lie okay we we acknowledge that there's people that do that sort of thing you know and we've we've seen the history of that but hang on these 12 apostles knew the truth they were with Christ they walked with him they talked with him they handled him they knew the truth what man would actually die for that which he knows is a lie you know it's a lie yet you'd be willing to die who put up your hand if you'd be willing to die for what you know is a lie you could run this particular subject through the minds of everybody throughout history and not a single person unless they're a little bit loopy would die for what they know is a lie These are the 12 apostles that were with Christ. Each one of them, except for John, who expired in Patmos, died simply for preaching Christ. Who would do that? They say that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the most attested reality in history. And this is something that's incredible that we see within the Scriptures. Yet, yet, we can talk no end with regards to the prohibition of truth the Inquisitions of the Roman Catholic Church was the most devil-inspired persecutions of them all. More terror was unleashed and more bloodthirst enacted by this satanic cult than any other in history. To them is the blood of the martyrs spoken of in the revelation of Christ. The cup of abominations is theirs, for which they have, we, we don't have any time to speak on. The greatest of all, the greatest atrocity of all, where the truth was killed, was Jesus. What is truth? When he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. John chapter 18 verse 38. Never in history would we see a greater injustice. Never so great a picture of the historical prohibition of truth than the crucifixion of Christ. Truth would find itself standing a mock trial. Jesus claimed to be the truth the way, the truth, and the life. But truth would stand a mock trial. Truth would be judged by a kangaroo court. The truth would be spat at, laughed to scorn, mocked, beaten, scourged, nailed to a cross, mocked again, left to die, and to ensure that truth was dead, he was pierced and the blood mingled with the evidence of his sufferings by his persecutors until he was finally buried. But truth would never remain in the grave, <laughs> never remain in the grave. It would rise and remain forever, and we'll see the evidence of this more as we look at the permanence of truth in the last message, last part of this series. This is truth. This is Christ. He didn't swoon on the cross, pretending that he was dead. When you hear all these different excuses, you know he swooned and he pretended that he was dead and. And you can imagine now all the apostles, they've seen the Lord Jesus rock up at the house and he's half dead and hanging. And we're like, oh, I want to be resurrected like this man. No, 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 no. That doesn't make any sense. There's no logic behind it. All these different ideas to deny the reality of Christ. The Bible actually says that. It just says that they they will give excuses for it. They will say that the disciples had taken away the body of the Lord, you know. No, no. He rose, he rose. Our Lord rose, and the truth will forever be permanent. The purpose of prohibition. Matthew twenty three, thirteen. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut up the the heaven against men for you neither go in yourselves, neither you suffer them that are entering to go in. The purpose of prohibition was to keep people out of heaven. The purpose of denying the truth is to deny heaven from you and I and everybody else in the world. This is Satan's ploy from the very, very beginning. He wants to use convoluted ways of being able to have people come to heaven rather than the simplicity of believing by faith that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. He turns away people from God toward themselves. Men do this to themselves and the simplicity of God is rejected. These people, they come up with these different devices in order to gain heaven and probably nothing is worse than the Roman Catholic system. If you've ever looked at the different ways that they've devised in order for people to gain access to heaven, you'd be absolutely astonished. They are so, my goodness, and they contradict one another. Everywhere these people, the simplicity is: believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Or you can do it by works. And if works doesn't save you, then you know, go to a cathedral and find the nail that put Jesus on the cross. Apparently, there's hundreds of thousands of those nails, because there's cathedrals everywhere with the nail um, or a splinter from the cross. You've got enough splinters of the cross to build the cathedral. And yet they're found in cathedrals, you know. So, all of these things that, that they're, they're saying, you know, just trust that, bow down to it, pray to that, and you'll, you'll maybe go to heaven. Or if you die wearing a brown scarf, there's a lot of these monks that've got to wear a brown scarf. They wear a brown scarf when they die, they're good to go. So, they never take it off. You know, that's their covering. all these convoluted ways, they strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. They won't believe the real simplistic things with regards to the gospel of Christ. And yet they're willing to obey and believe all these convoluted measures in order to get saved or stay saved. They strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. That's what they do. They complicate that which God made simple. Those who teach you you can use, lose your salvation then need to understand what the point of Jesus was dying on the cross. Those who teach that there's no Trinity need to explain John, 1 John 5, 7 and all the passages in the Bible that actually testify that the Spirit of God, the God the Son and, and God the Father did all those things, everything from the creation to the raising up of Christ, testified to within the Scriptures. How can that be? How can that be if it's not one and the same? those who teach we no longer have a perfect bible need to explain why god promised he would how could we have promised to preserve his words if he lost them how could it be that he does not have the power to keep his promises this is god how is it possible that god would lie would god need to lie? just think about that would god need to lie why would he need to lie God isn't capricious. He's not one thing one minute and one thing another. He doesn't he doesn't, he, he's not, he doesn't stutter. He doesn't contradict himself. He's clear all the way through the Bible. The Bible is the one book that testifies to itself. I've often pointed to that rainbow thing at the back there. It's not a rainbow. It's just a whole bunch of all the chapters on the bottom and all these interlinking verses. The Bible confirms itself. It doesn't contradict itself. And it certainly doesn't come up with laws and reasons why it contradicts itself. It is you not unified all the way through, as we would expect God to be? How can man somehow can obstruct God 's ability to preserve his words? And now we're also being told that God is somehow limited by language. He only speaks in one language. Really? I thought it was God that created language. Didn't God create language? Why would he I don't understand. Again, like I said last time, we have warning signs in different languages right? So we can be safeguarded. Why can't God give us that sort of warning in the language of the last days? The truth of the Word of God was being corrupted literally from the first century. Second Corinthians chapter 2 says this, for we are not as many which corrupt the Word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God speak we in Christ. If men could only corrupt the Word of God, then all hope would be lost for mankind. 1831, let me read to you this quote. This is a quote by the Unitarian Society. It's been urged on your committee by an enlightened member of your society that the the theological information which they seek to diffuse, that is this Unitarian doctrine, this idea that everybody goes to heaven, must meet with serious obstructions, so long as the authorised version of the scriptures notwithstanding all its merits of general accuracy and its greater merits of taste, continues to be the final appeal of the English readers in matters of controversy. The mere circulation of another translation of the Scriptures would tend to shake the undiscriminating veneration for the common version which prevails. Three plans presented themselves, either to attempt a new translation or to adopt and circulate some existing version of the New Testament. Let me explain that to you real simply. A plan put in place in 1831 to remove the authorised version of the Bible from the hands of individuals in order for them to believe the idea that everybody goes to heaven. Right? The plan was already in place there in 1831. Because as long as people hold to the authorised version of the Bible, they will never believe that everybody goes to heaven. If we want everybody to go to heaven and we want to teach that everybody goes to heaven at the end, regardless of what they've done, then we need to come up with a New New Testament, a new version of the Scriptures. And that was found in the monthly repository of Theological and General Literature, Volume 12, in 1831. Men were warning about the risk of hell and damnation in every way within the Bible. So we see hell in here. Hell is clear from the new Testament, Old Testament to the New Testament, all the way through. Yet every single modern version today has removed any reference to hell in the Old Testament completely and confused it in the New. The Unitarians of 1881 were very pleased with the new revised version, the first revision of the King James Bible in 1881. In this liberal age, they no longer trembled and no longer needed to tremble before the Scriptures. Quote, the revised version of the New Testament Rational Christians of all churches appear to view with pleasure the departure of the old words damnation and damned. A more temperate tone will be the result. The effect of the new publication of the new version will, however, be far more felt in the breaking of the spell. Already it is plain here that the Bible would be read and quoted in a far more open, free and reasonable way. A great work has been done. This is by the Unitarian Review and Religious Magazine, Volume 16, in 1881. In other words, very happy with the new version because it doesn't talk about hell. And it doesn't mention damned and damnation very often. The Annihilationists, these people that believe that when you die, you simply get annihilated. There is no eternal, everlasting damnation in hell. The Annihilationists in 1883 wrote this... Indeed, it must be admitted on all hands that the recent amendments that have been made in our old version have been directly in line with the doctrine we hold and are contributing greatly to strengthen our position. Did you get that? They're contributing greatly to strengthen our position. What position? The position that we believe in annihilationism, that when you die, you're simply annihilated. The new versions strengthen our position. Hang on. The new versions strengthen our position but the new versions lie so how can our position actually be strengthened i mean if in the end hell is real and it is everlasting torment for those who are condemned then how can believing the opposite make any difference does that make sense i mean you either believe that this pulpit is here or you don't believe that it's here but it doesn't change the fact that it is here It, it won't change that you know, you might not like me preaching to you this morning, but that doesn't mean that I'm not preaching to you this morning. All right? You might prefer me to be somewhere else, but I'm here. And it doesn't change the reality. It won't change reality. You can write as many different versions of the Bible as you like. It doesn't strengthen any position. All it does is strengthen the assurance of your deception. This all attended the same purpose and that which God spoke against the Pharisees. Woe unto you, Pharisees and scribes, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye compass land and sea to make one proselyte, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. This is the reality that we face. The New Testament that we found. That we've got within the scriptures, ninety-five percent of those words were by William Tyndale in the sixteenth century. How did he die? <coughs> Tyndale was executed by the Roman Catholic system because he gave us the Word of God in English. He was first strangled at the post and then set alight. And in doing so, and pr- prior to he, he being expired, he cried out, "Lord." Open the King of England's eyes. Open the King of England's eyes. It was William Tyndale who answered the Roman Catholic clergyman who came to him and he said to him, people ought to believe the Pope more than the Bible. And Tyndale said to him, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plough shall know more of the scripture than thou doest. How great is that? That was his testament. That was what he desired. He later wrote something that we all should understand with the simplicity of translating the New Testament. He said, it was impossible to establish the people in any truth unless the scriptures were plainly laid before their eyes in their mother tongue. Could you imagine if the only way you can know what God said was you have to learn another language in order to know what God said? I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty convoluted. I thought God can speak to everybody. I thought he died for all people. Why can't he speak in our language? In October 6, 1536, William Tyndale was indeed put to the stake, kindling about his feet, rope corded about his neck and before the rope was pulled to kill him, he said, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. It was almost 70 years later after the death of many translators in between. You remember the Queen Mary? Bloody Mary she's known as she killed more translators of the Bible than any other monarch before her. And that's why she was known as Bloody Mary. Is your Bible the result of the shed blood of martyrs or is it from the planned prophets of merchandisers? Which version do you have? version that I have, blood's been spilt over. If it's a modern translation, no blood's been spilt over that at all finally the price of prohibition and I'll close on this Jesus wrote in verse 35 that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel and to the blood of Zacharias the son of Bacchias whom he slew between the temple and the altar there are warnings in the Bible with respect to changing any of God's words there are warnings within the scriptures and Israel recognized that even from the beginning those who would say anything that was contrary to what God had said, the result was capital punishment. In Deuteronomy 4, chapter 4, verse 1, Moses said, Now therefore hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you, for to do them, that ye may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers giveth you. This was a a testament. And if anybody changed any of those words then to him would be the damnation that's found within the Scriptures. Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 to 19. At the end of the book, it says, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things that are written therein. I don't get it. Uh, I, I, don't get it. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get that part. You know, I don't get that part. I don't get the part that if the Bible's got a warning not to mess around with these words, if we've got that in Deuteronomy, and we've also got it in the book of Proverbs. It says don't, don't mess around with God's words lest you be found out to be a liar. And if we've got a warning at the end of the Bible telling us also the clear warning, don't take away from God's words, I don't get it. I don't understand why men would, would play around. I don't, I don't get that. That doesn't make any sense. If I wrote a, if I wrote a letter to my, my, my beautiful children and that letter was a letter of warning and a letter of hope, And I chose every word, every word that they would... I know the power of my words because I know my children. I know my children. And I wrote in that letter those specific words that I know because I know their history, I know their past, they will recognise the nuances that I put in place because I know that that will trigger a thought within their minds that would safeguard them forever. And I wrote that letter in detail and I gave it to a trusted friend and he was then going to get that document and they're like, no, nah, they won't really understand that. I'm going to change this word and put this word in place. And you know, I, get, I think I get what Eddie's saying. He wants to say this, but he doesn't really make it clear. I'm going to cross that out. I'm going to put something else in its place. How do you think I would feel as a father? I, I, I'd be incensed by it. I'd be absolutely filled with rage because my words have the ability to be able to change my children and be able to do that which is required within their lives. They and them alone can identify my words. You know, my sheep hear my voice, says the Lord, and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. My Father that gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And he says, I and my father are one. Man, these are the sheep that are losing the word of the living God because these self-professed pastors who don't even want to research the notion are leading them astray. And it breaks my heart. The Bible says, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. And this is what happens. Today we've got filthy dreamers that are deviling the flesh. In Jude, verses 8 to 13, listen as I read this last portion. He writes, likewise also these filthy dreamers dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending for the, with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they know naturally as brute beasts in those things, they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Cor. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, Twice dead, plucked up by the roots, what raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. These who pervert the truth and pervert the word of God, that's what awaits them. That's what awaits them. There is a future for these individuals. And the Lord will take away their place and nation. They will take them away Never have we been in a time in history where we need God's words more than today. Never. There's never been a time in history where things are so mad. Things are insane out there. Never has truth been so roundly prohibited than it is today and the vanities of man prevailing. How many philosophies have been created, devised to take away God's truth and turn it into a lie? How many souls are destined to perish simply because so many pastors facilitate doubt in God's words? The predominant language of the day today is English. It began in obscurity 1,500 years ago and has rose to dominate the entire world today and yet we are to say that we don't have God's words anymore. The warning of hell is clear in the scriptures. The way of salvation is equally clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Acts 16.31 Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3.18 the way of salvation is simple. Why would a loving God make it complicated? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's, it's, can't make it easier. Can't make it easier. There's a test of the heart, beloved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. I praise you, Father, for the gospel. I thank you for the word of God and I pray, dear Lord, that you would continue to do the work within our own lives, that we would learn to trust it and believe those things that are found within the pages of this book, lest it be taken away from us. I pray, Father, if there are any here, dear Lord, who are yet to believe the gospel, that that work of the gospel would do a continual work within their lives, and that your word will not return to you void, but it will do its work. We pray dear Father, you bless the remainder of this day, and bless those who hear. In Jesus' name, amen.